0: Welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Report. It's actually lucky number, uh, what are we on, six today. (laughs) Is it six? No, yesterday was six. I'm pretty sure today is actually seven. Let me fix that really quick and double check. Uh, But either way, uh, it is my birthday today, which is kind of exciting. That means uh, the first 30th year ever for me uh, is over. Oh, it is number six today. That's great. So we're on number six today. Uh, Tomorrow will be lucky number seven. And uh, yeah, I'm 31 today. It's kind of weird because I... I, uh, told myself that 30 was going to be a really good year because it was a new decade and obviously uh, when your birthday year brings you into a new decade, things have to go right. Well, they didn't. <laughs> I think 2022 was a little bit of a, of, of a challenging year, uh, although I'm a big fan of a challenging years uh, lead or, or sort of pave the way for good years coming after that. Uh, maybe maybe I'm blindly optimistic, but uh, I, I really believe that. So uh, we'll see. Fingers crossed, I guess, uh, for 31. But uh, yeah, there's there's surprisingly a lot that we have to cover today from what's going on with uh, Pfizer, what's going on with uh, Paul Pelosi, uh, multiple uh, crazy body cam releases uh, that I, I want to address, obviously, as well as the market. Uh, we'll probably also talk a little bit about real estate and house and uh, we're certainly going to talk about inflation, uh, more company research. There's a lot about that. We'll talk about Tesla, so a a lot to cover. I think the easiest way to get started is, quite frankly, just to get started in this one because it's quite wild uh, how much there is. Uh, First, I want to cover uh, this this chart on flows, and this is probably the most exciting part for the stock market, and it has to do with flows and how January can set up for the standard in the year. So the rule of thumb is actually pretty simple here. And I guess I shouldn't say rule of thumb because it's more of a uh, a statistical uh, happening rather than a rule of thumb. But apparently, if you have a positive January, which so far we have in the stock market, if you have a positive January in the S&P 500, there is a 48% chance that you're going to have a positive year uh, when, when when you have these combined. Now, that's a little less than half But when it does end up going positive, you tend to have an average return of 20%, which uh, I found that pretty remarkable. Uh, So this was a piece that Bloomberg put together, and it really, to me, it suggests that a positive January kind of suggests, okay, you have a 50-50 chance basically of having a green or red year, but if it goes green, it tends to have an average return of 20%. Uh, So I I found that relatively remarkable because that, uh, you know, the average return in the stock market, not considering dividends over the last 40, 50 years is somewhere around 7.9%. Throw dividends in, you're closer to about 9.1%. But that's also looking back where we've gone through periods of substantially higher inflation where you would expect higher earnings and, and ultimately higher... Uh, earnings per share and therefore higher stock prices. Remember, inflation is not always associated with the Federal Reserve trying to destroy the market and causing a recession. Uh, And so oftentimes, some nominal levels of inflation just lead stocks and assets to, to rise in price. So I found it very interesting that uh, a, a, a positive January is, is historically associated with sub, such substantially large returns, especially if uh, you know, the average return of the stock market going forward might only be not 7.9% anymore, but maybe 5% or, or even less. Who knows? So that'll be something uh, obviously we'll, we'll uh, pay attention to and keep our fingers crossed on because I think uh, most folks are looking for some positivity this year. We'll keep an eye on that. So uh, let's see here, that is the January part. Now, uh, another thing that is quite remarkable in uh, my opinion is that finally, uh, and this, is, uh, this has been a long time coming, we finally have Elon Musk meeting with the EV administration official and clean energy official, John Podesto. who's a senior advisor of the Biden administration at the White House. Apparently, Elon Musk met uh, John Pedesto uh, for a Thursday meeting. Musk later confirmed on Twitter that this was true. Uh, In fact, he just replied with the word true. (laughs) This is in contrast to him often replying to stories saying false. For example, just the other day, Bloomberg had a story of uh, Elon Musk potentially wanting to raise uh, $3 billion by selling shares of uh, Twitter. And uh, Elon Musk promptly replied and said, False. (laughs) So uh, I think it's uh, quite fascinating to see Elon's uh, uh, confirmation or denial. And and what's great about this is it really marks one of the first times that we actually see uh, Elon Musk involved in uh, anything that the White House uh, or the Biden administration has had to uh, or has been working on. Uh, And even though it, it it's not. You know, like a meeting with Biden and announcing something great or new, uh, it's it's a step in the right direction, especially since it, I think Elon Musk has regularly felt, uh, and so has Tesla, felt uh, like a little bit like the black sheep uh, from the Biden administration. That is uh, not not really invited to uh, EV events, even though uh, Tesla is an EV. Uh, an all-American EV manufacturer. So I found that uh, fascinating and uh, quite exciting. Another thing that I found so interesting about Tesla was this uh, tweet that came out about uh, the kilowatts or from the kilowatts. And uh, it, it shows sort of the time frame differences of charging a Tesla versus charging a, uh, a sort of regular electric vehicle. And uh, now what, what I find insightful about this is I've actually used both systems before also with a Tesla. Uh, so the left one has the Tesla supercharger. On the right side, you've got the Electrify America ones. I've used Charge uh, ChargePoint, Electrify America, Blink. I've used a lot of the different machines. And usually what you do if you have a Tesla is you just put a little adapter on your charger and, and you basically stick it in your Tesla. You go through the prompts, you set up, whatever you pay and you go. Usually the what, what I find, find is when I'm using the non-Tesla superchargers, they're a lot slower. Uh, A lot of the charge point uh, chargers that you get at, let's say, I don't know, Disneyland, uh, the Disneyland resorts in California, they're super slow. You pretty much have to have your car parked there for 10 hours to get any kind of reasonable charge. Uh, And most people kind of just park there, squat there and and never leave. And so they're rarely available. Whereas with the Tesla supercharging network, you're generally incentivized to get your butt out of there ASAP because they start charging you once you get usually to 80%, you can extend that to 100% full on your battery if you choose. But what I thought was great about this representation was just showing the simplicity of the Tesla supercharging network. Now, I will say they have given the Electrify America charger a little bit of a head start here, and I actually appreciated this. You can see that right here, the Tesla, uh, while the Tesla charging port is open on both of them, you can see they've already put the adapter in for uh, the the uh, other superchargers or... or regular chargers, whatever they are. Although Electrify America has been getting faster. Uh, They've been installing faster chargers. But let's go ahead and play this. And so you can see here, we're two seconds in, grabbing the device, sticking it in, and the Tesla person is gone within about six seconds. Uh, And now on the right side, you see that the individual has to go through uh, their app prompts, make payments, make sure it's charging. Uh, In fairness, I often do also double check that my Tesla is charging by making sure the light changes color on the little charging uh, device. But the Tesla person's been gone for, you know, uh, probably about uh, what, 22, Nah, maybe give him 20 second difference there. Not terrible, but it shows you some of the simplicity and the ease of the differences here. Uh, And the reason for that is that the Tesla charger communicates with the Tesla car that is there and the Tesla car is linked to uh, your own billing methods that are, again, linked to you via your car. So the Tesla supercharger knows this or maybe it's not the Tesla supercharger that knows this. It's actually probably more likely the Tesla and the Tesla uh, essentially LTE network. Uh, that's in the car that realizes, okay, we're charging, let's go ahead and bill, right? It's probably all done through the car, which is linked to your method of payment. So it streamlines the whole process. Whereas with Electrify America, they don't know what car is coming. They want to make sure they get paid. Uh, So everything has to be done through the terminal of the actual Electrify America station. So there is a a fairness to that in that really this is designed for Teslas, whereas this is designed for pretty much everyone, uh, which I think is quite interesting. In the future, there's a suggestion that maybe the Tesla app could be uh, a replacement for basically this whole terminal and you could use the Tesla app to uh, charge any kind of car, even if you don't have a Tesla, and, and have that sort of streamlined service via the Tesla supercharging network. I really think the supercharging network is something that's that's really underrated for Teslas. Uh, I, I think a lot of people, when they think about EVs, have uh, range anxiety, and, and I understand this too. I, I find, uh, one of, if you have a Tesla, one of the tips that I find is I personally found that most of the time turning off Sentry mode Actually, substantially helps extend your battery life. I used to have Sentry mode on all the time. You go to an airport, you're gone for four or five days, and you come back, and your battery's basically dead. And then you're, you know, you're wanting to get home, but you can't get home because you got to go find a charger somewhere. And then, then you know, you've got a line at the charging stations. It's kind of annoying. I've been able to prevent that now by turning off uh, the. Um, century mode Uh, apparently that uses an insane amount of battery which is crazy but uh, what i do think is quite remarkable here is if we look at the year over year growth of the tesla supercharging network you're actually seeing some substantial changes here Uh, i mean look at this if we go back to 2018 which i bought my tesla in the um, uh, winter of 2017. since then the tesla supercharging network has expanded by uh, 3.5X in terms of connectors. So that is there are 3.5X more supercharging connectors now than there were then. You can see that here, there were 12,000 then. Now there are 42,400. BP, and I don't know how or via what brand, but BP is also getting into superchargers, uh, British Petro- uh, Petroleum. They, I think they realize that EVs are like the next gas station basically, right? Uh, and so they have about 15,000, and I think it's remarkable that a company is, I, should I say, cash flow positive, as, as big oil uh, companies, has, uh, has 15,000 superchargers at all, I think that's pretty neat, or, or I should say charging stations, they're not necessarily superchargers at BP, but, uh, I mean, Tesla's sitting at about 3x BP, uh, and, and these are superchargers rather than just sort of regular chargers. I find it quite remarkable just the uh, the growth that we're seeing here. I mean, 30%, 35% rather year over year in a recessionary year, pretty remarkable. You've got 3.29X the amount of supercharger, uh, state, um, uh, what's it called? Sites, uh, stations, I guess they call them, uh, versus just the connectors. It's remarkable. There are so many superchargers now. You're usually not more than about 50 minutes away from a supercharger uh, when, when you're road tripping, which I rarely do, but, because I absolutely despise driving, uh, but when I do, I like having a supercharger. <laughs> now, uh, another thing that I'm noticing is there's there's a big discussion around uh, essentially superchar, or, or, or the full self-driving of other vehicles, like uh, Mercedes vehicles, and I thought I'd play a little bit of a clip here and we could react to a little bit of what it's like driving a superchar- or a, a supercharger, my head's in the wrong place. It's 4 a.m., okay? <laughs> but um, what it's like driving in in uh, the self-driving modes on some of the uh, competing vehicles uh, to Tesla. So here's a Mercedes one. driver
1: doesn't have so, to pay in. attention to the road when the system is enabled. They could read a book or watch a movie or even play a video game.
0: Okay, first of all, the, the, Argument that when the system is enabled, that you could just read a book or play a video game or whatever is ludicrous. Since most of these systems do require you actually still keep your eyes on the road. Uh, Now for Mercedes, uh, for Mercedes drive, I believe that's the case, but it's something to keep in mind that most cars that do this, especially like GM crews, they will make it that you still pay attention to the road. Uh, Tesla does this as well. If Tesla realizes you're looking at your phone, it's pretty aggressive at warning you to get off your phone and make sure you're still paying attention to the road. But uh, let's go ahead. Actually, yeah, uh, The Verge just did a piece about uh, 90 minutes ago, and they, which is a crazy time for releasing a story, but they are indicating that, yeah, with the Mercedes drive system, you do have to still keep your eyes on the road, which is what we would expect. Uh, So anyway, let's keep going here but they still have to stay in the driver's seat and
1: they still have to be able to take over control of the vehicle in case the need arises. We're currently on interstate five. We're doing 65 miles an hour. It's too fast for drive pilot though. We need to be doing 40 miles an hour or lower. We have to actively-
0: Okay, let me stop there and just say, it is ludicrous to suggest that you have autopilot that can only go under 40 miles an hour. This is no different than what like the Hyundai Elantra has today, which is really just adaptive cruise control and lane centering, which is not that hard to do. You keep the vehicle in the center of the lane using LiDAR or cameras, and uh, then then you use generally some form of radar to keep distance from the car in front of you. It's not that big of a deal. It's very old technology. Uh, I will. I do want to correct myself, and then I want to compare this to Tesla like five years ago. Uh, it does indicate that under certain circumstances, Drive Pilot does actually allow you to take your eyes off the road. However, uh, this is also, again, only uh, enabled under a 40 miles an hour, which uh, for most cases basically means it's only useful when you're stuck in traffic on the highway on certain approved roads for that system. So that is nice. Uh, that is a benefit. I'll give them that. But again, Tesla. Back in 2017, when I first got uh, the Tesla and I purchased the enhanced autopilot package, I actually bought the full autopilot package and everything. It was like five grand back then. Yeah, and now it's like $15,000. The Tesla back then allowed you to enable autopilot on the highway and it wasn't watching your eyes. You could do whatever you wanted to do. Now that's not to say that that was the safe thing to do. You still had to wobble the wheel about every minute. Uh, Back then it was less aggressive. It wasn't watching your eyes, you didn't have to wobble the wheel as often, uh, and uh, certainly was nowhere near as good as it is now. But w- the technology that I'm seeing now right here from Mercedes was already surpassed in 2017 by Tesla. You could drive the Tesla going up to 80 miles an hour back then on autopilot on the highway. Highway miles are, are some of the most common driven miles that, that Tesla actually has, and th- that makes it extremely good on the highways. You know, Teslas don't have as many hours yet in the rain or in the snow or on certain, you know, roads it's not familiar with. Uh, so obviously the, the beta system is still learning there. By the way, thank you so much for these happy birthday wishes and Junebug here and Jerry, these, these super stickers you're sending, super cool. Thank you for that. All right, let's keep going here. Be
1: in traffic in order to enable drive pilot. Right now we're using Mercedes-Benz regular adaptive cruise control, lane keeping assist, their driver yeah. assistance system, which is actually really, really, really nice. Um, but once we hit some traffic, we go under 40 miles an hour, we'll be able to engage it. But there are some other caveats.
0: It, I mean, to me, it's just, it sounds ludicrous that your your drive pilot only functions when you're going under 40 miles an hour, but we'll keep listening. Be On the highway, the weather has to be nice.
1: It can't be raining. It can't be freezing. And you can't change lanes. You have to stay in your lane while drive pilot is enabled. But I don't think you'll really care if you can't
0: change lanes if you're able to text and watch a movie or read a book or play video. Okay, so this is playing up the idea that, hey, if you're going under 40 miles an hour, you're allowed to take your your eyes off the road. I I mean, in, in theory, you could probably just enable that for any... Uh, adaptive cruise control system. I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing to encourage but uh, that is a sign of at least some confidence from Mercedes in their system that only goes up to 40 miles an hour and doesn't change lanes. One of the things that I think is remarkable about um, Tesla is and, and uh, you know this sometimes is a little bit annoying but the um, it, it'll change lanes for you automatically if traffic is moving faster or slower, depending on on, uh, what lane you're in. So if you're in a slower lane, it'll automatically change lanes for you. If you're uh, in the passing lane, which is technically the far left lane, it will take you out of that lane if you want. Uh, You can disable the exit, the passing lane option. In Europe, it's very rude to stay in the passing lane. In America, it's very common to stay in the passing lane. Uh, In fact, it's probably the safest place to be in an American highway. Is on in the passing lane on the left <laughs> because the pretty much the only way you could get uh, in an accident is if you crash into someone or someone rear ends you. Uh, it's it's you know you don't really have anyone else around you. Generally, you don't have people merging into your lane uh, as frequently because you don't have an on ramp from being in the right side of the lane uh, or, or lanes on the highway. So uh, ironically, <laughs> far left lane tends to be the safest in my opinion. Anyway, let's keep listening.
1: games because the car is driving for you as you're using the system, uh, white means that you, you are in charge. You are the person who's driving this vehicle. And then as you move up the levels, you go up to level two, it does tell you that adaptive cruise controls is on. And so that, that turns green in the, uh, the dash cluster, but there's still this you know, other things that are white. Then once you get to a situation where you can use Drive Pilot, you can tap the buttons that are on the steering wheel and then everything fades to green. And then once it's all green or turquoise, once it's all turquoise, then the vehicle is uh, driving. So as Drive Pilot disengages or is about to disengage, it, it warns you, gives you an audible visual warning. And then it also tells you why that it is disengaging. So as you take over, it'll say, for example, uh, it'll tell you that the vehicle ahead of you is going faster than 40 miles an hour and it's pulling away. Um, And at that point, you need to take over the vehicle and of course speed up because people behind you are probably very, very angry.
0: I mean, that's just ridiculous. I hate to say it, but again, the 40 mile an hour limit drives me nuts. Apparently right now, a drive pilot is only available in uh, Nevada and potentially California. It looks like they're uh, going through and trying to get compliance in each individual state. Uh, I'm sorry, they're working on California for later this year but right now it's actually only available in Nevada and under 40 miles an hour. L- let me just say this if I'm gonna buy an S-class Mercedes or an EQS you know for uh, over 115 thousand uh, dollars, I-, I I better be able to have autopilot on more than 40 miles an hour because I expect to be you know, like in my opinion, if, if you're <laughs> if you're regularly commuting, you're going to get a little frustrated by that idea. i probably just not use it. I get it if you're stuck in rush hour traffic, but boy, um, a, little, a little frustrating that Mercedes hasn't expanded that system yet. But hey, you know what? That's uh, that's the way the competition is right now. Uh, the uh, If somebody in front of you pulls away and then goes faster than 40 and the, whole, the, the system disables, uh, hopefully it at least still enables the uh, lane centering. And uh, adaptive cruise control, which I expect that it probably does. How much distance? There's another click here. between than that, right.
1: uh, because of course then.
0: Okay, now, now you have to take over. Why is that? Uh, probably because the sun is blinding so much. Okay. Drive pilot. Okay, I'm gonna. I'll give credit there. It, it uh, when the sun is hitting a Tesla at a certain angle, it, it does either tell you autopilot is degraded. Uh, and to pay more attention or that it just has to disable so we- weather is a challenge for the adas systems there's no doubt about that and tesla doesn't try to get permission state by state they just introduce it
1: <laughs> Pilot off system
0: currently unavailable yeah, no, so we've, we've turned thrown
1: into technical limitations so yep. i've turned a little bit no we have turned a little bit and now you can turn it on again there we go there it is
0: activated drive pilot Yep. cannot be activated. Oh, oh, because he's too-
1: got to So let me catch up. Close up a
2: little
0: bit because we need that lead So vehicle. how much- Okay, that's interesting. So you actually can't turn on drive pilot until another car is close enough in front of you. So it needs, it needs a leader car to actually function. That's odd. How much distance do we need between lead vehicle? It's about a yeah,
1: hundred meters. Okay. So now activating drive pilot and now it's- And of course, this is a very seconds. specific
2: situation. You would not account encounter that on a real highway.
0: Yeah. The slope curve. So. You wouldn't encounter a sloped curve on a real highway. I, I don't know. That, that's an L right there. Uh, Europe has sloped curves all over because the highways are designed to be driven on faster. You know, it's, it's remarkable to me uh, that uh, you have really almost nobody competing with Tesla on vision-based uh, ADAS uh, or, or, or full self-driving. It, most of them are still stuck in the ways of radar, uh, LIDAR, um, and, and uh, you know, multiple other uh, methods to, to ensure the vehicle is where it thinks it is, like mapping, vehicle mapping, understanding exactly, okay, we're only going to enable full self-driving on certain roads like GM Cruise does where we know where every single sign is and every single stop sign is and every single, uh, you know, road, road bump or, or lane marker is. It's interesting, it's it's a different strategy, but I think that's going to slow down the competition substantially. And I'd love it if we had more vision-based competition for Teslas, really, because uh, that uh, the more competition you actually have, the more you, not that Tesla needs motivation, but the more you actually motivate the leader to keep going, right? As soon as you look over your shoulder and you're like, oh man, somebody's catching up, you start pushing harder. And uh, that motivation isn't there. Again, I don't know if it's needed, but that motivation isn't really present right now. So I find that super interesting, uh, the the lead uh, on on Tesla's uh, full self-driving. Just uh, another brief comment on my experience with Tesla's full self-driving is it's it's gotten quite remarkable. Uh, Again, I finally got FSD about six weeks ago, uh, maybe five weeks ago, actually. I was very excited about that. And uh, now... without intervention, it will drive me from destination to destination. So I found myself getting in this habit of getting in the car, uh, putting in my destination and just pressing the button and just watching it do do everything that it does. And what I've also found really remarkable is I used to, uh, you shouldn't do this, I used to keep a little like counterweight uh, on, on the wheel so I didn't have to nudge it every so often. I actually stopped doing that for multiple reasons. Uh, number one, the FSD is so good now, uh, but I don't 100% trust it, so I actually do literally pay attention to it the entire time, but I'm rarely, uh, taking over anymore. I kind of just sit there, and I'm just amazed by, oh, let's see what it does here, and it's incredible what it does. Uh, it still makes you wobble the wheel every about 30 to 60 seconds, yeah, but... Not 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 a big deal at all, and it's it's pretty painless. You get pretty well in the habit of, of uh, wobbling the wheel and uh, uh, operating with with FSD. So it's really remarkable that uh, it's making incredible left turns. Uh, it's pulling merges off uh, merges off well. One of the places that I find it struggles is. Yield signs, it still often treats as stop signs, which is a little annoying if you have traffic behind you, but it's learning. You could see it gets better with every iteration. Uh, once they upgrade the neural nets, that is, uh, I've, I've watched that over the past, um, uh, past while improve in certain areas, which is nice. So uh, kind of wild to be part of uh, a time where probably in, in five years, our children will never have to drive themselves. I think that's pretty cool because I think human drivers are never going to be as good as a as a computer, or a computer will will at some point far exceed the capability of, of human driving, which is good. It's just always paying attention, <laughs> unlike us. We don't pay attention; we do silly things. So uh, those are some interesting thoughts I I wanted to share on on Tesla's full self driving. Uh, I do want to say that uh, as Tesla's stock runs, it's worth just paying attention to. The fact that the, the more the stock runs, the lower your rate of return potentially becomes for making an investment, right? So for example, if we pull up our last valuation model and we suggest, okay, 4.7 million vehicles by 2025, I'm sorry, uh, 4 million vehicles by 2025, 47,000 average selling price per vehicle, take rate of 10% on uh, FSD for new vehicles sold, Uh, I purposely went with a low take rate because some of them are going to be sold as a software as a service rather than just the full 15K payment. Uh, In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if most people just end up using the um, uh, monthly fee uh, capability for full self-driving, and that way they could see if they like it, and then why shell out 15K now if you could just pay monthly for it. Sure, eventually you'll you'll pass a break-even point where it makes sense to just have owned it rather than pay forever, but anyway... uh, Look, as, as Tesla stock price moves up, uh, the rate of return that you expect goes down, right? Uh, and the multiples move up again. So for example, when Tesla was $120 per share and you expect it to be, say, $489 at the end of 2025, your rate of return is somewhere around 59%. But now if we're at, say, $180, your rate of return per year drops an entire 20 percentage points, brings you down to about 39%. Uh, and if we go back to let's say 300 your rate of return goes down to 17% which don't get me wrong is still good but then then you start wondering is it, like at what point uh, does it makes do do other companies potentially then exceed that rate of return so as the price goes up it becomes stickier uh, for it to keep going up although i do have this bet that if uh, tesla ends up running to $200 per share by uh, the time the coupon expires uh, for the programs of Building Your Wealth, link down below with lifetime access to those course member live streams and all the new content we had, that's in uh, two days, then uh, then I have to dye my hair green. I made that bet uh, when, this was before earnings when I made the bet. The stock was somewhere around 127 bucks a share. I wasn't expecting it to run that quickly, so we're knocking on the door of green hair here. So It's kind of remarkable. Anyway, Uh, We've got some talking to do now about uh, what's going on with inflation. We did a lot of talking about Tesla here. So I'm going to write that down here. So Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. I don't know. I always think it's fascinating. Look at what the competition is doing. And a lot of folks who aren't familiar with the different self-driving systems, they suggest, oh, you know, these other companies have full self-driving too. and, And they're referring to these systems where cars are able to go 40 miles an hour or whatever. And it's not even close. Uh, competition isn't even close And I wish it was Because again I think that actually Motivates Competition is, is good uh, Again if, if if you think You have no competition You're not really As motivated <laughs> uh, Anywho So Let's take a look At some inflationary issues This is what we're Going to talk about next Let's see here What we have We have a lot To talk about Regarding inflation We're going to do that In just a moment Let's see here. Hmm. See, now, one of the downsides of the weekend is you don't really have CNBC or Bloomberg to help you in the meantime. (laughs) There's no cover. That's okay. I actually enjoy reacting to to them, though, when they're playing, uh, so that's enjoyable. But uh, let's see here. Where did I? Here we go. Yes. All right. So we got a few things to talk about with, with regard to inflation. It's both good news and bad news. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to cover some potentially bad news about inflation or some potential news that makes us want to take a pause and suggesting that that's it, inflation is over and uh, we're in the clear. We, we, we don't want to be in the mindset that uh, inflation is for sure over. Remember, the big danger that we face in the market right now is believing that inflation is done. There's no way inflation can rise again. And, uh, and and we're back to the moon. And there's always the risk that inflation pops back up. And in the event that inflation starts trending back up again, we're going to be in um, a not a very happy stock market, dare I say. And what I think is remarkable is that while this risk of inflation remaining somewhat sticky uh, exists, we're actually noticing that bond yields are remaining very sticky, which is actually quite bad for real estate. In order for the real estate market to really get a floor placed under it in terms of the pain that we're about to see in the real estate market where we're going to get those year-over-year comparisons showing negative real estate appreciation, which I expect will create substantial fear in the real estate market. I believe a sticking around 3.5% for 10-year treasuries is bad for real estate. I believe we need to get to about 2.5% on the 10-year treasury. Unfortunately, quantitative tightening contributes to the 10-year sticking around 35 But also, I think as inflation goes away uh, and and you start seeing inflation uh, uh, recede, you should have more people moving into uh, taking advantage of these bond yields at three and a half percent. And you should see the yields fall. But because they're not falling, it's a sign that even the bond market is still uncertain that inflation for sure is going to fall. This is despite the fact that the bond market is pricing in rate cuts from the Federal Reserve at the end of the year. So you definitely have a very tentative market, I would call it. And there's a reason the market is tentative when it comes to inflation. Here's a piece from Bloomberg that suggests there are no disinflation signs yet in Jerome Powell's preferred price gauge. And uh, that this is the price gauge of basically core services excluding rents. And uh, even though inflation on PCE is undershooting the Fed's summary of economic projections, when we look at core services inflation, we're still stuck at about 0.4%, which is the same as where we were last month. And on an annualized one, three, and six-month basis, we're still stuck at core services around 5%. And this is not good, especially the super core level, which is where you take away uh, uh, what you have for uh, housing uh, services x inflation right? Uh, and so this chart right here shows us PCE core services x inflation uh, And it shows us still relatively high uh, inflation uh, is stuck in this sort of core services segment. Uh, and this is creating some pain. Uh, for, or or some ammunition, that is, for Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve to potentially say, hey, you know what? When it's time for uh, his press conference, he might end up uh, uh, referring to exactly this measure, this core uh, services inflation measure, and suggesting, hey, look, core services are still running hot. We're gonna stay higher for longer. I actually think the Federal Reserve is going to have to do exactly that. They don't want to talk inflation or or they don't want to sort of talk up markets and reiterate what markets are seeing, which is this idea that, hey, inflation's going away. Inflation's not the problem anymore. Instead, what's the problem is an aggressive Fed. I don't think the Fed wants to do that because if the Fed does that, we potentially create, we reiterate a market rally and we potentially lead people to spend more money on services, which leads to more services inflation. And then inflation comes back which actually would likely induce a harsher Federal Reserve reaction, with uh, maybe maybe truly higher rates. Maybe the uh, concern that rates could end up running to uh, three point uh, or sorry to six percent becomes a reality if in, uh, inflation ends up popping up again, or core inflation, core services inflation continues to stay high. In order to keep massaging this down, you have to make sure people stop spending money. Uh, as much as they are. And the more people keep spending money, the more that level stays up. People spend more money when they feel wealthier, when uh, when when they feel that real estate prices are going to start moving up again or stock prices are going to start rallying again, start spending money more loosely again. Usually, at least according to uh, Robert Schiller from Princeton, a uh, famous economist uh, who uh, has put together things like the K. Schiller Index for real estate, he suggests that it's actually house prices that lead to the biggest boost in core services inflation. So it's really when people feel like they're becoming poorer because home prices are coming down, that is generally when you're going to really start seeing that deflationary hit to to spending and then core services. And so I believe the Fed is going to have to pretty much have this pretty harsh face on for probably at least the next three to four months. Whether or not they actually raise rates each of those months, I think the important thing is them, whether they pause or not, being very clear that we're staying here at least until we're certain that core services inflation is going down, especially ex-housing, because we do think housing is going to plummet. Housing inflation will plummet. Uh, That has to obviously happen, uh, which if it doesn't, that'd be a big problem. But we think with leading indicators uh, such as current rents versus old owner equivalent rents, that will end up happening and housing will end up being a big uh, anchor to inflation coming up. Uh, we, we have to see that come through. But in the meantime, I think probably it's too premature to be excited about this idea that the Fed is is going to be really nice to us on February 1st, which is uh, their, their next uh, FOMC meeting uh, press conference day. Now there's a lot of talk about uh, this CPI change in how the federal or uh, how the Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics or um, uh, the, uh, uh, the the um, CPI release is calculated. So there's a, a CPI waiting. and there's a little warning on the CPI website at the Bureau of Labor Statistics that says starting with January 2023 data uh, the BLS plans to use will be updated with weights using annual weights based on a single calendar year rather than using expense data from two years, which is the usual way they do it. Now, a lot of folks think that's it. Here we go. This is the Bureau of Labor Statistics rigging data again. And maybe that's true. But I personally believe the reason that they are wanting to use 2021 weights rather than 2020 and 2021 weights as sort of an average is probably because of the oddity of a year that 2020 was. All right, 2020 was really COVID and lockdown year. And I believe that's probably why you're expecting uh, the BLS to use weights just from 2021 instead of 2020. And the weight changes could end up being relatively nominal. So, we'll see. When the next CPI report comes out, uh, we, we will find out, okay, uh, hey, what 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 were the weight changes, right? And then we can a little bit more break down, hey, how much of an impact did these weight changes actually have? Personally, I don't think they're going to have a dramatic impact, but mark your calendar for February 14th, and we'll see what impact these weight changes have had. Uh, again, this is not saying we're we're not going to compare to 2020, we're not going to compare it to 2021 in terms of pricing. It's just to say that, because we're, actually we're not, right? We're really only comparing to 2022. It's just to say that what consumers spend their money on is going to be looked at from the perspective of 2021 spending rather than 2020 when we were in lockdown era, uh, which lockdown era could could overweight, let's say, home services rather than restaurants and air travel and going out services. So we'll see what uh, what kind of impact that ends up having. But I think it's too soon to, to say that, uh-oh, here we go. the CPI is for sure going to be rigged. Now, we do have some more good news, but also bad news when it comes to inflation. I started with bad news. So I think for a brief moment, I'll continue with, with bad news. We've already talked about how Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble, Staples providers, are still seeing high inflation uh, and the impacts of high inflation are expected to be felt in their earnings for at least the next five months, really basically through the first half of 2023. That's actually a bad thing, right? We don't want to see that staples or companies that are producing our, you know, shampoo or deodorants or whatever, Uh, or still suffering from high inflation, whether that's freight costs or commodity prices. And even though those commodity prices have come down, they're still seeing year-over-year pain in inflation. That's not good. We don't want more inflationary indicators. Uh, And Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble are really telling us they don't expect to see inflation start subsiding until the second half of 2023. Now, it's entirely possible that by the time we get to the second half of 2023, we're going to be in an environment of deflation, potentially rapid deflation. Certainly, we're already seeing that in the autos market. And there was actually a post this morning that I saw showing uh, price cuts for certain BMWs. Yeah, here it is. South Bay, this was the car dealership guy this is the faceless guy who actually provides pretty good information on, on cars in uh, uh, or on Twitter. Uh, I have not verified this, but anytime I've verified any of his other information, it's been pretty right on the money. So I'm going to go ahead and go with it here. Uh, he indicated that BMW started dropping prices, at least. Here's a South Bay BMW report showing that uh, there's a South Bay BMW clearance sale going on. Uh, and that all new and in-stock i4s, Series 3, Series 4, Series 5, Series 7, Series 8, X3s, and X5s uh, are all receiving price cuts ranging between $3,500 and $10,000. Probably the average price cut here is about four dollars to $5,000. So it's interesting to start seeing price cuts occur at uh, some of the competitors to uh, Teslas. And I think that's actually quite deflationary. And I expect we're going to see a lot more of that. But in the meantime, we, we do have a little bit more bad news to cover. And then I want to get to some good news on inflation. And that is what 3M just said in their earnings call. So 3M, look, I, I am, I'm the biggest fan of earnings calls. And uh, we, we continue uh, to, to read earnings calls on a daily basis to try to study what's going on in the world. We believe that earnings calls are some of the most underutilized, yet best tools for understanding what's going on. For example, in the Tesla earnings call, we actually believe that Tesla alluded to future price cuts coming, but did so by dodging a question about whether or not future price cuts would come, but reiterated that future price cuts would actually come via their margin pressure comments. That gross vehicle margins would probably decline to about 20% for Teslas uh, and then eventually trend back to 30% over time. Uh, That means the worst of margin pressures isn't actually built in yet to Tesla. This is something that I think the market is somewhat forgetting, is that, yes, the margins were not as bad uh, for Q4, but this is what I said, right? I, I said this going into Q4 like 27 times. I said, look, most of the price cuts occurred in Q1 or at the end of Q4 with vehicle credits, you're not actually going to see the real margin damage to Tesla until 2023 in Q1 in that vehicle report, right? That could end up being the worst for Tesla. Uh, but I, I think markets are, are rallying now for Tesla because they, they see that the demand for Teslas is still there. And even if they do cut the price of this vehicle because they're now recognizing FSD revenue, their earnings per share actually has the propensity of of growing quite substantially as Tesla recognizes FSD revenue and more people start taking FSD. That's the big question. This is one thing to recognize revenue for stuff you've already sold. It's another thing to actually continue to sell and push FSD. Anyway, let me get into this 3M earnings call. So uh, the 3M earnings call... Uh, gave us uh, both green flags and, and red flags. Uh, I'll start a little bit with with some of the, the red flags. And unfortunately, 3M, much like Procter and Gamble and uh, Johnson and Johnson, which these are are staples, right? These are our like industrial staples. I like to call them. When when they see when they see inflation, you know, a lot of people are seeing inflation, right? Uh, they expect uh, inflationary pressures to remain also for the first half of 2023. So now you have three big companies saying that, Johnson Johnson, Procter & Gamble, and 3M. They're also seeing slower than expected growth due to rapid declines in consumer-facing markets, such as consumer electronics and retail. And they say that dynamic actually accelerated in December as consumers sharply cut discretionary spending and retailers adjusted inventory levels. Now, that actually, on one hand, is actually deflationary, right? Uh, Taiwan Semiconductors actually came out in response to this and said, hey, look, even though we expect fewer smartphone sales, uh, more smartphones today are actually using more semiconductors. And so, Taiwan Semiconductors thinks they could be somewhat insulated to reduce smartphone sales in that each new smartphone has more semiconductors in it. I thought that was very interesting. Don't get me wrong. Taiwan Semiconductors is still seeing uh, reduced demand uh, as as other companies are. But th- I find that very interesting that, yeah, the more advanced products get, uh, the, the more chips they end up using. China has COVID-related impacts. Healthcare continued to be challenged in its recovery. A fall off in disposable respirator, respirator demand and our exit from operations in Russia. Uh, respirator demand, not a surprise to see a big decline there. Everybody was buying construction respirators for COVID initially. Inflation continues to impact raw material, logistics, and energy costs. The pressure remains persistent, and the pressures are broad-based. I believe that people at the Federal Reserve are either asking Jerome Powell to read this, Jerome Powell's either reading my videos or watching my videos, or, uh, or staff at, at the Federal Reserve is passing this kind of stuff on to people at the Fed. And I, 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 it's not good When you have 3M, just now, they just released this, right? This is on January 24th. They just stated that inflation continues to remain persistent for them, the pressures of this. That's a red flag, right? And so this is another reiteration that, unfortunately, the Fed's probably going to have to be uh, tight for longer. Now, 3M says they address inflation through price actions. Well, price actions are, are really a way of saying that we're going to raise prices. But the problem with price actions is price actions don't necessarily mean you can pass on all your inflationary costs. And I found this very interesting. I actually highlighted this uh, right here specifically. So I'm going to read this and i want to translate it. The key question for us that we have to think through, and that's what we are thinking through, is as deflation starts showing up in the economy, the discussion that we're going to come up with is the elasticity of price, not just across our company, but across all companies. We found that over time, the company that drives value to the customer can end up having a good price equation. Now I paraphrase that slightly because this person stumbled over this miserably. So I'm going to now translate this in, in English. Deflation is likely coming in the second half to input costs and output products within the industry. Output products are stuff you buy. Input costs are stuff they use to make stuff. And deflation is likely coming. Now, 3M expects to still be profitable, but it sounds like they still expect to be less profitable. In other words, they expect to be in the green, which is their word, but have lower pricing power and lower margins. So this is really remarkable because now you have a situation where you actually have the following. You have United Airlines talking about potentially competing on price with the other airlines. That was just in their last uh, earnings report. You have Winnebago talking about potentially competing with their competitors on price. You have Johnson & Johnson talking about deflation coming in the second half. You have uh, Procter & Gamble talking about deflation coming in the second half, or at least, uh, you know, reducing inflationary price pressures. So I'll call it disinflation for Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble. And now you have 3M saying, what's it gonna look like when we start going into a deflationary environment? While everything is not yet good, it is clearly, very, very clearly evident and in our face that we are probably going to go into a disinflationary environment and then soon hit deflation. Now, the problem with that is it's not going to happen fast. And that's what I keep trying to convey in my videos is that we are not going to get, in my opinion, a V-shaped recovery. The days of a Larry Kudlow V-shaped recovery are over. Instead, what we're seeing is in January of 2020, everyone is like, holy hell, inflation is terrible. Uh, you know, we're kind of over here, let's say, and and markets are still to fall. Everyone in their earnings call is like, inflation is so bad, so bad. We're all raising prices. Everyone's raising prices. Th- there was so much unanimousness. And and people wonder like, Kevin, what was your catalyst? They still wonder to this day for selling in, in, in January of 2023. And it was the combination of all of the earnings calls that I was reading, combined with the Federal Reserve going, oh damn, we've, effed up. <laughs> uh, they didn't exactly say that, but they basically said that. You could still see my reaction to the Fed going, oh damn, we effed up. Uh, by looking up a video, meet Kevin, worst report ever, Federal Reserve on YouTube, you find it. It was from January of 2022. It was, it's, it's actually like, I think, a history lesson to go back. Not because of what I said, because I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but because of what the Fed said. Uh, and, and it was combined with all these crazy earnings calls. Uh, now, we don't have the catalyst for a V-shaped recovery because what are the earning lists or earnings calls telling us? They're telling us slow, slow recovery. That's what all the earnings calls are telling us. They're telling us still seeing some inflation, slow recovery, slow recovery, slow recovery. There's no indication, though, that things are hellish to where we would expect a black swan event. Don't get me wrong. A black swan event could happen. You could have some kind of insane dislocation in the bond market where markets suddenly crash, uh, and and some insanity occurs, uh, and and, uh, stocks could just suddenly break substantially lower, and then the Fed has to come in and bail out markets and save the day. But there is a high likelihood, in my opinion, I would say a 90% chance, okay, this is my opinion, I'm I'm going on all in here, okay, so I could be wrong, but I believe there's a 90% chance that we actually end up having the Nike swoosh style recovery where stocks just continue to recover and they, there will be volatile days. Stocks will go down again. I don't know from what level they will go down again, but they will go down again. There will be red weeks and there'll be hellish times and there'll be fearful. There will always be red again. But I think on net, unless we have some kind of massive capitulation in uh, because of some kind of black swan event, I think the Fed's going to keep this aggressive face on and markets are going to slowly very, very slowly trend back up again. We just broke for the first time the downtrend by breaking the 200-day moving average on the QQQ and the spot. If you're watching video rather than the audio podcast, you could see that here. If you're just listening, it's simple. Because now, obviously, uh, after I do these live streams, I'm posting these to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify. So, so that way you could listen to these when it's convenient for you. But we've broken the 200-day moving average, and we've really begun what could be the beginning of a slow uptrend. Now, I want you to keep in mind that if we go back to the old days of the uptrend, after the V-shaped recovery of Larry Kudlow, we basically had two years of an uptrend. We still had dips, though. It was a rocky way up, but it was a consistent up. It was higher lows and higher highs. We potentially could start that trend again now. And that's very exciting to me. Now, there's also some more good news, and it has to do with Chipotle. Chipotle Mexican Grill uh, actually just gave us some very interesting insight regarding hiring and jobs, which is probably one of the most important parts when it comes to what the Federal Reserve is looking at. The Federal Reserve right now is suggesting that they need to force joblessness to to prevent the most deadly, uh, financially deadly aspect of inflation, which is a wage price spiral. And Chipotle just came out and announced that they are hiring 15,000 individuals across America, which is an increase of about 10, or I'm sorry, 15% of their 100,000 current workforce. That actually sounds inflationary. That sounds bad, right? Coupled with Walmart raising wages. But we've already talked about how Walmart raising wages is really them catching up. uh, And they are probably lagging far behind because they're losing money. And they're very sad that they have to raise prices for their employees to keep them. But Chipotle actually gave us some good news. They said the following, quote, It's been getting easier to keep hourly staff, with December being one of the company's best months in years for retention rates, says Chipotle's chief restaurant officer. Easier to hire entry-level workers now that retail demand is softening, and tech companies such as Amazon are laying off workers. The workforce is migrating back to leisure and hospitality, increasing applicant flow. Now, Chipotle is trying to double its footprint of restaurants across uh, the country, and this is potentially the best opportunity for them to do so. All right, so let's try to understand that for a moment. Chipotle is basically telling us the wage pressures are going away. More people are finally coming out, applying for entry-level jobs, which reduces the risk of a wage price spiral. This is good because this is what happens in a recession. People look for work. And uh, the few companies that are actually expanding are the ones that can really set themselves up for massive success in the future. I'm not trying to, again, pat myself on the back, but I, I myself, and I don't know if this will play out well, it's obviously a massive risk, but I have taken on more spending and more business building for my own businesses, whether that's Uh, the YouTube business or uh, the courses we sell and providing more value within them or uh, the real estate startup that I have or uh, the the financial business that I have. We're, We're putting more effort into these than ever before. And it's because I believe that the time to invest is in a recession. Uh, and, and then when your competitors don't invest in a recession because they're giving up and they're throwing in the towel and they're bored or, or they're just not winning the way they used to and they're sad or, or whatever, or they're, they're afraid to spend money in a recession, well, I, I believe I, become, I have a mass, massive competitive advantage by spending. And so I personally relate to a company like Chipotle on obviously a substantially smaller scale in, in that now's probably the best time to expand because nobody else is. And this actually sort of reiterates what we're seeing with what the Bank of Canada told us the other day, uh, which is that higher rates take a while to hit services inflation. And even though services inflation is remaining relatively sticky, it is likely to come down in the second half of the year. And so far, that's what everything is pointing at. Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Winnebago, United, 3M, Chipotle, they're all singing the same song. Yes, prices are still higher today than they used to be. Yes, there's still some persistent pressures, but it looks like by the second half of 2023, they're gonna be gone. And then we're gonna be dealing with deflation as a greater risk. And when we deal with deflation, guess what the Federal Reserve does? They print money, baby. They print money. You don't have to look far uh, to understand that the Federal Reserve uh, prints money when we face deflation. The European Central Bank and uh, Deutsche Bundesbank uh, have been regularly referring back to the times of fighting deflation with printing money. There was actually a piece, I can't recall if it was in the Wall Street Journal. No, it was in the Financial Times, that's where it was. There was a Financial Times piece where uh, a member of the Deutsche Bundesbank just a couple days ago was talking about how, look, when, when we face deflation, we print money. That's just what we do. Now, whether you think that's good or not, or sustainable or not, doesn't so much matter. It matters what in practice occurs. And in practice, that's what they do. So I find that uh, uh, very entertaining uh, to, to pay attention to. <laughs> because it's it's going to be so weird that when uh, in the future, uh, we're, we're back to money printing. And in a few years, we look back and go, What? How are we back to money printing? This is incredible. I actually found it here. Uh, this is uh, the Deutsche Bundesbank Financial Times. Here it is. The article is entitled, Interested in China. Oh, sorry, that's an ad. <laughs> Opinion, Eurozone Inflation. Eurozone Can Beat Inflation While Keeping Market Stable. It's by Zabin Maderer which kind of sounds like murder that doesn't sound too good. But anyway, a few years ago when inflation was stubbornly low despite a series of interest rate cuts, central banks were expanding their toolkit to lift inflation. This resulted in asset purchases in trillions of euros. <laughs> this was written like a few days ago, okay? This is not like forgotten. The Fed knows that when they need to print money again, they will be back to printing money. It's kind of remarkable to think about, but it's coming. It's coming, and, and the signs are very very clear. I think it's funny, where and and I've really stopped caring. Like twenty twenty two, I cared too much, way too much. Yeah, it was a very difficult year psychologically for me. I, I'm in a way better, way better uh, place now, head head state wise. It's great. Uh, it's important, especially as a creator. I think uh, you know you have to go through those sort of phases uh, or or, or the struggles, and then and then learning to advance. Uh, But anyway, I'm in a much better place now, which I'm happy for. But, uh, you know, I I, I look at, at, uh, sometimes I'll post a video and go, here's good news on inflation. And then I post a video and I go, here's bad news about inflation. And if you actually watch the videos, you see, I'm I'm actually painting a very consistent portrait. I'm saying, I, I don't believe that on net, we're going to have a big capitulation. I think there's a lower chance of that. And I think we're going to uh, have a Nike swoosh style recovery where it's slow and steady, and you want to be invested in the market because you're not going to get the big Fed U-turn. That's like a bad signal. It's just not going to come this time, uh, and, and and that's why I've been invested in the market. Now I think I invest in the market too too early, and and we can complain about you know my personal moves and decisions all day long. I don't think anybody's perfect, but I think the message that I'm sending is very consistent. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who who don't actually listen and, and look, take a step back and look at the full portrait that we're painting. And they just look at titles and they're like, yesterday you said inflation was good. Today you say it's bad. This is like flip-flop 127. And I actually think what's quite fascinating about my channel is if you go back and look at all the videos, not suggesting that you do, but if you go back and you look at all the videos since January of 2022, I've been pretty dang consistent with the trajectory uh, and 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 I don't maintain that consistency for the purpose of saying, oh, I'm consistent. I do that because the, the, the data has been clear. You know, the data has been very, very Nike swooshes that things are getting worse, 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 worse. Okay, okay, now we're starting to see changes, 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 and they're very slow and gradual. It's these very slow and gradual changes that make sort of this portrait that we're in now, which I think reiterates the Nike swoosh. Quick down, a stock market crash that fell three times as fast as the dot-com bubble, no necessary massive capitulation point, VIX stays low. Why? Because we're Nike swooshing. Now, I get the question all the time, Kevin, why, why, is, why is the VIX so low? Why is the VIX so low? Because we're Nike swooshing. I don't know if it'll stay that way, but that's a belief that I have. Uh, it's also interesting that Americans are actually working fewer hours right now Americans aged 25 to 39 are pulling back on work. The top-earning 10% of men in the U.S. logged 77 few hours in 2022 compared to 2019. Now, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, I, I think that, in some sense, has a little bit of uh, a disinflationary uh, push to it because if people work less hours, then you actually suggest that there's less demand for their labor, and that is disinflationary, right? So, uh, working less hours, I think, is the worst thing that you could possibly do from a uh, from a personal point of view. Not, uh, and, and I'm a big fan. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of you having balance in your life. I'm a big fan of you working less hours. But a three percent reduction in working hours in 2022 is odd. A uh, top 10 percent earning women down 29 hours, down one percent. Um, that must be per year, uh, or. Uh, I'm not exactly sure in what measure that is. But anyway, we're we're seeing this decline uh, in in average working hours. And I find that interesting because really I think during these times we should all be thinking about, okay, recessionary times, rather than working on trying to scale back, what can we do to double down and make more money? Because that'll make it easier for us to take the foot off the gas when, when things are good again. It's so easy when things are good to just be like, I don't have to work today, right? In a recession, you really, I think, want to be of the mindset of, how can I go make more money right now? How can I study harder? How can I understand more of what's going on? Uh, so that way, you know, you're not, um, what, what you're, you're insulating yourself the best way possible, but you're also making the best investments, potentially, at the bottom of the market. Uh, and, uh, and you're making yourself more resilient. And you're growing your business more, or whatever it is you're doing. You're providing more value at your workplace. You know, I, I, this is actually, I think, one of the best times that if you're an employee, to provide value Uh, to your job or to, to the career that you're in. So I would make the argument that right now, 2023 is the absolute best time for you to look at whatever it is you are doing and say, how can I work harder? How can I wake up an hour earlier every morning? How can I improve my skills? How can I provide more value at my job? And I don't want you to think about what your net worth is. Put your stupid net worth in a box and forget about it for 2023. Don't worry about it. Work harder. The harder you work, the luckier you are going to get. And I think now is that time where you really want to be that person that says, I'm going to increase my skills. I'm going to get another license to help provide value in my jobs. Uh, I, you know, if you're working in finance, I'm going to start studying for a CFA, you know, Certified Financial Advisor License, or not license, certification. So that way I know how to do uh, financial modeling better than the next guy. I'm going to learn how to type better. I'm going to learn how to use chat GBT better. I'm going to learn how to uh, uh, code better. Whatever it is that you can do to provide more value, now's the time to do that. Even if it means spending money on some more education, you know, even though people are tighter with their money, uh, and you know, I personally believe now's the best time to invest in yourself and your education. Sure, perfect opportunity for a shameless plug about the coupon code expiring in two days for the programs of Building Your Wealth, where you basically get a condensed version of everything that I know about investing in real estate or stocks or finances or businesses or growing businesses, whatever. Uh, YouTube channel, real estate agent, doesn't matter. Entrepreneur working at a business, doesn't matter. Uh, tax tricks for tax season, doesn't matter. All, all of them are there. But this is the best time to learn how to be a better you, essentially, to, to build a better routine. One of the tricks, and this is, uh, so, so here are some, some tricks that I would try to help guide you on. Uh, trick number one that I like to use is I like to uh, think of every day as an opportunity to optimize something. Uh, and now, I think that's really interesting because a, a lot of people don't, right? Every single day, we, we wake up and then it's not uncommon to look and go, ah, still haven't sorted those sweaters away. Or then you go downstairs and go, ah, still haven't changed that light bulb, still haven't fixed that light switch, still haven't put a charger there where I usually leave my phone, still haven't found the same spot to put my phone every day. I think you should try every single day and not to fix all of the problems in your life, but optimize one thing. Every single day, optimize one thing. Make one thing just slightly better. And when you do that, it's surprising how, over time, these benefits compound. And all of a sudden, you're not looking for your phone anymore because you leave it in the same place. You get a routine of optimizing by leaving your watch in the same place in every day, every single day. And now, all of a sudden, you're a more efficient person on a daily basis. That's an easy number one thing you can do is optimize something every single day. The number two thing to do is just a reiteration of what I've already said, which is learn something and, and do that now. That is probably the best thing uh, to do is what can you start learning now? Most of the time, we think, Okay, yeah, all right, whatever. I'll enroll in a license, licensing course in the future. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll learn how to type better in the future. No, do it today. Do it now. What's stopping you from doing it now? Oh, you don't want to print out the form that you have to sign and send him? Well, then let that be the thing that you optimize today. But the other thing is really, I think, and this one sounds basic, but you want to throw as much money as you can into optimizing your self. So if that means throwing money into your business as an entrepreneur, if that means throwing money at, at your investments or, or uh, again, you know, spending money on, on education, do it. Even in a recession, even though that's painful, now's the time to do it. Now's not the time to spend money on vacations or butter, as I say. You know, it's the rules of guns and butter. Guns gain value over time. Butter loses value and melts away over time. So stay away from the fancy clothing and 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 the the you know the new car or whatever. People regularly ask me, they're like, oh, Tesla just cut its prices on its cars. Should I go buy a car? No, that's stupid. What you should do is prepare to go buy real estate. Every single one, uh, every single person listening to this video should be thinking about buying real estate. The reality is only about 64% of Americans own real estate, and generally they're much older Americans. Every single, so that means probably uh, maybe only 50% of you are homeowners listening to this right now. That's sad. We have to flip that. Everybody should be thinking about being a homeowner. People are like, oh, I don't know. You know, I'm thinking about moving in two years. So what? Built-in reason to bank hack, baby. Oh, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I don't have enough money. Buy something smaller. Oh, I don't know. I got to work on my credit. Have you called a lender to have your credit run to see what you can qualify for with your credit the way it is now? Probably not. Because you're convincing yourself that you can't get to the next level. So, in addition to uh, optimizing something every day and spending on your, uh, you know, not spending on butter and optimizing your spend for yourself and your investments, do stuff now. Get the pre-approval letter now. Call a mortgage lender right now. Well, maybe not because I'm filming this at 6 a.m. California time. But, um, you know, whenever there's a normal opportunity, call Go on Yelp right now and, and and call a lender. Here's how easy it is. Okay, we're going to go to yelp.com and we're going to go to, I don't know, Chicago. All right. So let's say I'm a Chicagoan. And uh, we're going to go Chicago, Illinois. I'm just going to put in uh, mortgage lender. There we go. Throw that in. Throw in mortgage lender. Hit enter. Everybody should be doing this. All right. We got the sponsored results up for up front generally a big fan of skipping the sponsored results. All right. So what do we got here? We got the Molitor Financial Group. Dude, this guy's got like a perfect rating, 111 reviews. This is awesome. We got Lakeside Bank over here. Great. You know what? Banks are great for credit unions. This guy's probably a mortgage broker. There's, call both of them. <laughs> like it's not that hard. Uh, let's see. That guy's a realtor. A&N Mortgage Services. Women owned and operated. I don't really care if you're a dude or a woman. I honestly don't give a crap. But I'll probably call you too because uh, now I'm going to call a broker, I'm going to call a bank, and then I'm going to call, you know, a company that maybe isn't as busy because you're not at the top of the list. And, you know, what what else? So now I'm going to call three people and go, hey, what do you need for me to get pre-approved? They're going to send you a needs list. And guess what? All of the stupid needs lists are going to be the same. Literally all of them are going to go, two months of bank statements driver's license, two years of tax returns, W-2s, social security number, pay stub. Simple. It's all the same basket of crap that they're going to ask you for. Why? Because they're all going to sell your loan to Fannie and Freddie. And so what do you do? You make a little Google Drive folder. And in that Google Drive, or Google Drive folder, you put all the crap. And then what do you do? You change the little security setting to to, to people you've invited and you invite the different lenders. And guess what? Anytime one of them asks, well, like, oh, well, I also need a letter explanation for this or whatever. Drop it in the box. Because guess what? If one of them needs it, they're all gonna end up needing it. So now all of a sudden, you're getting three quotes doing exactly the same work. Oh, and guess what? You're like, oh, but Kevin, aren't they gonna need like a loan application? They're all gonna want their own. Nope. There's something in America called the Uniform Loan Application. It's literally the same damn form with sometimes like a different logo at the top. Just put a filled out uniform loan application in it. They will all be able to use the same thing. They're like, oh, but we need a schedule of real estate and a schedule of investments and a schedule of accounts or whatever. You don't have to use their custom form. Make your own little spreadsheet and drop it in. (laughs) Just put the same info in. It's so stupid proof. And then now you have a little bucket that you could just send to anyone. You want to qualify, you know, you go to a listing and the listing agent's like, oh, this is a bank foreclosure. You have to use our lender. Guess what? Here's my Google Drive. It's that simple. So, uh, you know, while I don't think it's the best time to buy yet, I think you probably still have another six to nine to 12 months to wait. Just work on your pre-approval now. You know, and start looking, start getting exposed to real estate now. You don't want to be in a situation where it's like, oh crap, I got to buy now. And you don't even, you, you don't even know where you're buying yet, you know? So uh, that's really important. So uh, what's another thing that you could do to optimize? Uh, I personally believe, and so we'll call this the fifth thing that you could do to optimize your life. Uh, we'll call it the the five things you could do to optimize and become a millionaire. Uh, I don't know, in, in, in 2023. Uh, the the fifth thing that I think is really important and, and I'm not just like, look, uh, you know, there's this old saying like, oh, do as I say, not as I do. Like people give advice and then they don't actually do it themselves. Everything that I just told you, I am doing myself. I put my money where my mouth is. I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in my businesses. I'm investing in my education. I'm optimizing every single day. I'm uh, spending uh, as little money as possible on, on butter. Um, and I'm spending as much money as possible again on my businesses, uh, because that's really important right now. We're, we're not, we're not focused on, oh, let's go on vacations with the kids and go to Disney and go on cruises or this, that, or whatever. That was last year, right? I'm looking at this year and, and even last year we toned it down a lot because we're like, ah, going to recessionary time. We got to tone this down and focus on investing in the business instead. So we're kind of tuning that dial and that's all I'm doing right now. But um, the, the, the fifth thing that I'm doing that I think is actually really useful and important is waking up at the same damn time every day. Now, I know that sounds hellish, but damn, it's been so good. I've, I have never done this in my life. Uh, I've always, always slept in on the weekend. Uh, and, and sleeping in for me might be like 7 a.m., okay? Okay. I've always done that, but it's Saturday right now. It's my birthday, and I woke up at 3:30, which guess what my time is set, my, my alarm clock is set to every single day of the week? 3:30, baby, 3:30. And now, guess what? I'm in this routine where when I wake up at 3:30, yeah, don't get me wrong, it still sucks. I'm still tired. but I was tired enough the day before to go to sleep by nine. Uh, That still gives me my, you know, the six and a half hours to where six and a half hours plus four cups of coffee, I function. But I've also optimized by realizing that I can't have coffee at 4 p.m. anymore because then I can't go to sleep at eight, right? Or not at eight, at nine. Uh, And so I've optimized by banning myself from drinking coffee past 12. I've optimized by making sure I wake up every single day at the same time. It works really well. Again, it sucks because it's a weekend, but honestly, kind of like this. Mm. You know, another way I've optimized, and this is a little bit more specific to my business, but I'm I'm constantly changing stuff and optimizing, is by having this routine of of doing these larger live streams in the morning with everyone, and it's so good because it gets all all of the content that I want to cover covered for the day, and then I'm not running back and forth between the studio, and so then I can focus. On people in in, in in our business, whether that's real estate agents, uh, lenders, flying pilots, pilot managers, um, whether that's uh, uh, employees, uh, you know, hiring, whatever it is, I get to work with everyone. And now now we're doing more research than ever before. It's remarkable. It's actually really exciting. So these optimizations really, really make a big difference. Thank you, Robert, for donating twenty dollars and, and uh, wishing me a happy birthday. I will enjoy that when I go paintball later today. That's what we're doing for my birthday. I, I don't, I don't know if, if I'll, I'll, I, I, I'm, I'm doing the tough guy right now. I don't know if I will when it actually comes. Push, push comes to shove. But I told everyone at least one match we need to do. Uh, everyone else, one strike, you're out. Kevin, maybe like three strikes, you're out, but everyone in the office versus Kevin. So it'll be like a, you know, like a 10v1 or something like that. Uh, (laughs) uh, If I get bum rushed, I'm screwed, but I'll, I'll, I'll (laughs) but I think it'll, uh, it'll, it'll be pretty entertaining. So, so we'll, we'll see what ends up happening anyway. uh, So, so I think these, these optimizations are really important. Uh, What's another thing that I could think about for optimizing? Uh, the, the, uh, one thing that, that I have noticed is, uh, it's, if I drink too much alcohol the day before, 3.30 sucks. So another thing is maybe there's a reason they say five, it's five o'clock somewhere, because it's probably better to have your five o'clock drink if you're going to go to sleep at nine than having your drinks at like eight, because then you're not going to get that deep REM sleep because alcohol prevents you from going into deep sleep as long or as deep. And so you don't actually get that refreshing sleep. Uh, And I know sometimes people are are on the internet are like, "Yeah, don't talk about alcohol. That's taboo. It's like, no, it's life. Uh, I'm a big fan of, and I I haven't opened this Tesla tequila. I I like cheap tequila um, because I don't like spending money on alcohol. I actually much prefer drinking at home uh, because it's so much cheaper and then having a barbecue or whatever, which people were getting mad at me for calling having hot dogs barbecue. I guess hot dogs aren't barbecue. You, you, barbecue, you can barbecue hot dogs, but that's not called barbecue. I, I didn't know that. Sorry to all the Texans that I offended. I didn't know. But anyway, now I know. Anyway, um, I think it's much better uh, to, to kind of like consolidate your drinking between like five and six, and then stop, you know, just Have a little more if you wanted to in that time frame. And then stop. Because if you drink too late and you're going to bed early, it just screws you up the next day. Real bad. So so let your body detox while you're still awake. It's a good idea. So we'll call that tip number six. (laughs) That's grilling. Ah, okay. Good to know. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, uh Uh-oh. Mikey says, get ready to have balls coming at your face. You will be a sticky mess by the time you're done. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Thank you, Mikey. Um, so anyway, those are some things that I would think about when it comes to optimizing. So uh, hopefully some of that was, was useful uh, for you. Okay. Now we have some other stuff to cover that I think is more just in the days of news to cover. Uh, we have to, I want to briefly cover some of these things because people are asking for my opinion on it. And uh, so I will provide it. Uh, even though these things are quite touchy, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and cover some of these things. So I think the first thing we'll do is we'll probably talk a little bit about uh, the Pelosi drama, and then I want to hit uh, what's happening with Pfizer and otherwise. So let me go ahead and get this ready. Uh, what we're going to do is we'll start with Pelosi and a little bit of background on the Pelosi disaster. And uh, some of the footage regarding it. And then we'll go ahead and add some commentary on it. Uh, as well as sort of touching on the narrative that's being st- spun by both sides. Uh, I, I really do find myself uh, pretty, pretty ardently uh, trying to see both sides. Uh, but I'll, I'll provide my opinions on this as well which is difficult to do because anytime you provide an opinion, you risk that opinion being different from someone else's. But we'll do it anyway. All right, so... Now we're going to talk about Paul Pelosi and the body cam footage that was released uh, indicating uh, how the morning uh, events unfolded at the Paul Pelosi household. Now remember, when we first heard about the Pelosi attack... Uh, we, uh, there, there was on one hand an outpouring of support for uh, people uh, wondering why was the Capitol Police not present at Paul Pelosi's house. Uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi wasn't present, so maybe that's why, but generally Capitol Police is, is still present uh, for family members. At least that was an expectation at the time. Uh, and it was also Paul Pelosi's expectation at the time. There was also the uh, discovery that David DePape, was somebody who lived in uh, a pretty broken world lived in a house that uh, in Oakland which looked almost like a homeless encampment with BLM flags and LGBTQ or, uh, flags and and also commentary online uh, of David dePape posting about stolen election uh, elections uh, and theories around uh, QAnon and so you had this really mixed situation, where you have somebody where people can't really label him as, like, super left, people can't really label him as super right, because you kind of have this mix of both going on. And this individual was somebody who uh, broke into Paul Pelosi's house. We know that he broke into Paul Pelosi's house because of surveillance camera footage, uh, which you can see on screen now here if you're watching the video. One of the issues it creates of, of him breaking into this house is this issue of, of the time at the top of the clock showing 5.10 a.m. Uh, Friday, October 28th. Now, I believe that this camera is actually set to Eastern time, which is unfortunate because it complicates the narrative a little bit, uh, because this would actually be 2.20 a.m. California time. Now, that time actually becomes very important because law enforcement isn't actually called until 2:23 a.m. That's about 13 minutes after uh, this sort of smashing of of this uh, what ends up being a rear uh, glass door at this property. It's worth noting before before moving on here that these glass doors are uh, probably the weakest point of any house. And uh, there's something that I recommend individuals who are worried about ever their safety or break-ins stay away from having. Uh, the way you can solve having glass doors is by having basically security doors above them, whether they're they're sec- or outside them. They're built onto the frames around them. This right here shows you uh, actually the glass door that was broken in. Given that how hard it was for David Pape to actually break in this glass door, I believe that this glass door actually had a security film on it. You could see how ordinarily, well, you would expect, how ordinarily a glass window would break with the strike of a hammer. One, two strikes, boom, the glass shatters, it falls. This appears like it had some kind of security film on it, which actually delayed David DePape's entry into the home by uh, probably 30 uh, to 60 seconds. It was a lot harder for him to break that glass because of a security film. But your best probable protection against a sort of intrusion like this would be some kind of on-frame security door uh, that sits on the frame like this, uh, e- essentially around the frame of the door, and and is some form of steel mesh. Uh, less less pretty, obviously, but uh, a lot a lot more secure than than a glass door like this, because then you can reach in, unlock the door, and you go in. Anyway, apparently the police were not actually called until about 2:23. Which, if the timing's right, is is about a thirteen-minute delay. Now there are some rumors online that David Apape was potentially in the property uh, for as long as uh, third uh, or, or for as long as four hours before the police were called. Uh, and uh, if if the timing here is right, that appears to be untrue. It actually looks like the. Um, Uh, attacker would have only been inside of the property for approximately 13 minutes before the police were called, and uh, the reports are that Paul Pelosi was able to uh, call the police by somehow convincing David DePape to let him make a phone call, uh, potentially by suggesting that David DePape came in asking and demanding for Nancy Pelosi— and maybe, we don't know this, I, I want to very clearly signpost where we don't know, but maybe Paul Pelosi made the argument that, hey, let me call Nancy Pelosi. He ends up calling uh, the police. And uh, we have some of the audio here that we'll play now. And uh, let's no take a listen to enemies, at least uh, some of it here. Here's interest. a 48-second clip. It's and not the full clip, but we'll listen to some if of it. We it voted like that, we would be able to leverage that block. Hold, hold it's on a, a second. Consistent this consistent block is like in a consistent in our long-term a, best interest this is the wrong audio <laughs> that's my fault for playing the wrong audio ignore that that was the david rubenstein show here we go this is a, a clip of the audio this gentleman just uh, came into the house uh, and he wants to wait here for my
2: wife to come home Zero, two, and so uh, do anyway, you know on do you know who the person is no i don't know who he is he, he uh uh, he has been me. He told me not to. Uh, he told me not to do anything.
0: What is your address, sir? Uh, so I'm going to just going to pause there for a moment. Uh, this this call actually uh, starts uh, a little bit too far into the call, in my opinion. I want to start a little bit earlier, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to grab the the full length call. Three, but what three, I want to do is is my expectation is that because Paul Pelosi knows, and we don't know this with certainty, but because Paul Pelosi knows he's not the intended victim here, I think he's trying to play it cool. And that's what you get on this phone call because he's not trying to send obvious distress signals. And David DiPapi, which we now know in an interview afterwards with police, actually said that he didn't think the police would come, but he had a suspicion that they might. He had a fear that he feared the police would not forget that this call happened but it seems like david tapape had enough of a delusion to believe that because of this call it wasn't enough of a distress call that maybe there was a chance the the police would not actually come let's listen to a little bit more you'll listen to how calmly the call the call starts now, that's actually really important because a lot of people on social media are going, why isn't he saying help? Why isn't he saying come now, come quick? This is an emergency. Well, because if you have somebody with a hammer standing next to you and you're like, come help, it's going to take five to 10 minutes for the cops to come. You could be pretty dang dead by then. So let's, let's listen in to, to the, the, the play here. Please
2: send for Oh I guess I, I guess I I, I called them the what is it? seconds. This is San Francisco police. Do you need help? Oh well there's a gentleman here just waiting for my wife to come back. Nancy
0: Pelosi. See, I'm I, this is actually very interesting because if, if you consider that for a moment, oh, hey, there's just a gentleman here. He's waiting for my wife to come, Nancy Pelosi. You know, he's sending the signal like, hey, like, this is really important. There's someone here waiting for Nancy Pelosi. That's already enough of a distress signal without sending that distress signal bluntly to DePape, right? Who's clearly a little loony. Actually, I would say substantially and a lot loony, but let's keep going. Twenty-three and.
2: Uh, 30, he's just uh, waiting for her to come back because he's not going to be here for a day, so I guess we'll have to wait. Zero, okay, two, do you need police three, fire or medical for anything? Eight seconds. Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Zero, two,
0: twenty, three, and... So- this is actually what uh, law enforcement uh, dispatchers get trained for. Hey, do you need police, medical, or anything? Oh, no, I think everything is okay. Long pause. Why are you still on the phone then? right? Like that is, this is a way of signaling distress without signaling distress, right? This this is actually, uh, I, I think Paul Policy knows exactly what he's doing here. This is despite the fact that it's 2 a.m. and this is probably pretty scary. Okay. Eight
2: seconds. Yeah, there's the, uh, um, is the Capitol Police zero, around? Two,
0: 20, no, this is San Francisco. Usually... See, look at that. He's asking for the police without asking for the police.
2: Think my wife, they usually here. they usually here at the house. Protecting my wife. Uh, no, this, this is San Francisco
0: police. Friday, October.
2: I, I, no, I understand. Eight, two thousand um, twenty two. Okay, well.
0: Zero.
2: Uh, twenty. Four and what do you think?
0: This is when David DePape, actually, you know, he, he catches Pelosi on the phone. Uh, and uh, we don't know exactly when De Pape comes in, but it seems like Paul Pelosi was at least able to get to his phone and make the call, right? And so now De Pape probably has this point of view of, okay, well, let Pelosi de-escalate it so the cops don't come, right? My that my guess is that De Pape, for some reason, let Paul Pelosi out of his sight for a moment or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe Paul Pelosi, and this might be why it took 13 minutes for him to make the call. It's like, hey, hey, okay, okay, hey, oh, Nancy's not here, Nancy's here, here let, let me put a shirt on, let's let's talk about this, let's get Pelosi, oh, you know, let me go, uh, I, I don't know, go go get my glasses or something, and then he gets away and is able to quickly make a call, gets on the phone with the police, and then the pap is, you know, what, what, what are you doing on the phone? Like, no, 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 we gotta deescalate this, and I think that's where Pelosi's playing this down now, and that's kind of where now he's on the phone, I, I, I don't know, man, like, what do you think? In other words, is this good enough? Like, they're not gonna come with that, right? Paul Pelosi's like, please come, please come, please come, please come. But to DePape, he wants to keep DePape de-escalated.
2: Uh, he thinks everything's good. Uh, I've got a problem, but he thinks everything's good.
0: See, look at that. If it's so clear, I have a problem. I am Paul Pelosi, I have a problem. A man is in my house who's waiting for Nancy Pelosi. The other person thinks everything's good, so, hey, you know, maybe, maybe everything's good. <gasps> please come, please come, please come. Right? Zero, uh, two, okay. 24. Call us back if you I change your mind.
2: Eight, Seven. No, no, no. This, this gentleman just uh, came into the house.
0: See, look at that. Even there. Call us back if you change your mind. And and no, 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 no. I do need your help. I actually think the dispatcher here uh, could have probably caught on a little bit earlier, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe it was a little bit of a stressful night here.
2: Uh and he wants to wait here for my wife to come home. Zero, two, and so uh and forty eight. Anyway, he's on me. To know, put the phone do there. you know who the person is? No, I don't know who he is. He he uh uh he has this, he told me he he's told me not to uh he's told me not to do anything. What is your address, sir? Uh yeah, twenty six two, twenty, five and zero. What is your name? Seconds. Uh, my name is Paul Pelosi. Friday. Anyway, this, person, this gentleman says 20, that he uh, thinks You know, me to put the 20, phone down, 20, and uh, just do 20, what he
0: says. Okay. Okay. Who what That's pretty blunt, right? A gentleman's here telling me to put the phone down while I'm on the phone with the cops, and do what he says. What's the gentleman's name?
2: I don't know about what's his My name's David. The David, name is David. Okay, and who is David? I, I don't know. Seconds, what's that? I'm a friend of theirs. Yeah, I, I, uh, he says he's a friend, but as but I said, I've never... But you don't know who he is? No, no, ma'am. Eight seconds. Okay. He's telling me I'm being very leading, so I've got to stop talking to you, okay? Five and okay, you sure I can seconds. stay on the phone with you just to make sure everything's okay? No, he wants me to get that all off the phone. Zero,
0: two, okay. okay and zero eight. Thank seconds. you. Okay, bye. So the no, I'm not going to stay on the phone with you. He wants me to get the hell off the phone with with you. That's that is. These are distressing signals, right? So the police end up coming. Uh, it, it takes them about eight minutes to get there, which is probably not a, a code response. In fact, based on the body cam footage that we have which I'm not going to play all of it, because if I play all of it, uh, th- th- all of this, like everything's just going to get demonetized and, and it's going to be a disaster. Uh, so I, I will, I will play some of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, but anyway, so, uh, anyway, uh, clearly the officers aren't, you know, responding to this lights and sirens because we, we don't know with certainty, right? We don't have certainty that, uh, th- there's something wrong here, but this would probably be called be called in as, as like a potential distress call and a welfare check. You don't go lights and sirens. You don't code to a, a, a welfare check. So if I were the dispatcher, I'd probably call this in as like, hey, this is weird. Do you mind checking this out? Let's do a welfare check. Here's the address. Someone says there's someone in their house. They don't know who they are. The other person's telling them to get off the phone. Do you mind going to check it out? Very typical. Okay, let's take a listen here. Audio is not on yet. It comes in. There we go.
2: Yeah, definitely don't want all of I definitely don't want all of you.
0: Hello. And I don't know who holiday is, but them going, we definitely don't want holiday here. I don't know if that like implies like they're sergeant or something like that. I, I don't know. So double knock, um, okay, I thought the other officer was maybe on his phone, but he's actually just got his hands up, uh, by, by his chest. That's actually a very typical way that officers will stand because you don't want to have your hands on your, uh, hip. Uh, because if then somebody comes and lunges at you, it takes that much longer for you to defend yourself. Okay, so, so this is pretty typical, you know, it's like, okay, we don't, we don't know what's behind the door. It's also very typical that after an officer knocks on your door, they're going to walk away from the door. Because sometimes people knock on the door, and this has happened to officers before, and somebody just blows a shotgun through the door. It's insane, but it happens. So, uh, at least when I was a law enforcement explorer, we were always taught, move away from the door after you knock.
1: Yeah. Like it said. 2620, right? No, 2640. Oh, 40.
0: So it actually takes, what, maybe, I think, from knock, 20 seconds or so for the door to open? Yeah,
2: it literally said there. Hi, hey guys. How you doing? How are you?
0: So Paul Pelosi here says, Hey, guys. How are you? Okay. And David DePape is not saying anything They're we were doing what looks like holding hands but they're not David DePape has two hands on a hammer Paul Pelosi has one hand on the hammer Paul Pelosi uh, his hand is under what probably looks like the top of the hammer here and uh, uh, we believe that David DePape is right-handed and he has the handle of the hammer Paul Pelosi's in a shirt and underwear I believe that Paul, I mean, Paul Pelosi was woken up, right? I believe he probably was able to make his phone call by saying, hey, like, let me go uh, uh, put a shirt on or whatever, right? That's probably how he's able to make the phone call. I'm making that assumption. And, and clearly, him looking over here and keeping the distance is, is, is somewhat of an indicator of, of concern in, in Paul's face. But social media is, is taking the stance that Paul Pelosi uh, saying, hey, guys, how are you? Is, is a sign that, oh, everything's okay. Like, why is he not going, oh my God, help me? Because someone has their hand on the grip of an, a hammer and they're threatening to beat the crap out of you. Even with the cops there, well, what ended up happening could happen. Paul Pelosi ends up getting whacked in the face. Uh, let's keep playing for a moment.
2: What's going on, man?
0: What's going on, man? Uh, notice that... As David de pulls back here, he's when when he's he's stepping back from law enforcement, which means David DePape has now started to mentally think, oh crap, they're not going away. I'm not going to get Nancy Pelosi. Uh-oh. And you can see Paul Pelosi's like, uh oh. I'm, you know, I got evil on one side and I have help on the other. What do I do? Now Social media is freaking out about this, that Paul Pelosi is holding a glass or a drink. That's because a lot of people on social media are convinced that this is all just a grinder date gone wrong, that Nancy Pelosi was gone, and Paul Pelosi wanted to get off with a dude who had an LGBT flag over at his house, and therefore, Paul Pelosi's actually... um, looking for a sexual relation outside of his marriage and uh David DePape was the perfect person to help solve that problem apparently that's what social media is convinced of thanks to the drink in Paul Pelosi's hand when the reality is probably the smartest thing to do for Paul Pelosi because he knows he's going to lose in a fight against a younger David DePape the probably the smartest thing to do is hey man Let me put my shirt on. Hey, man, no, it's all good. Like, Nancy Pelosi will be here soon. Hey, you want a drink? You know, could I offer you something? Can I offer you a coffee? Do you want a beer? Like, hey, man, you know, it's not me you want. Like, let's talk about this, right? This is de-escalation 101. Uh, So I, I am very hesitant to play much more here, but I will try. Hold on.
1: All right. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey, hey,
0: hey, hey. Okay. At this point, David DePape, uh, starts wrestling the hammer away from Paul Pelosi. And this is where you could see Paul Pelosi's actually quite nervous about this because he's like, hey, 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 no, 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 Like, don't take the hammer. And the officer, like, what the hell is going on? They have no idea, right? And unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to stop playing it here, uh, because th- at, at this point, um, The individual uh, lunges and strikes uh, Paul Pelosi. The officers instantly jump into action uh, uh, tackling uh, David DePape. Paul Pelosi uh, ends up uh, having to go to the hospital and have brain surgery because of his injury. You can go to my Twitter, at RealMeKevin, uh, so if you want to see uh, more of this, uh, all you have to do is you go to at realmekevin, which, by the way, look, I get little balloons that pop up when I go to my own Twitter now uh, because it's my birthday today. Uh, but anyway, if you go under likes, you'll actually see a lot of the reference material here and you can kind of watch the full stuff. So you just kind of scroll down likes. When I hit like, by the way, it's just as a way to sort of document, like, here reference materials. It's not suggesting I actually like this kind of stuff. Uh, but anyway, so... Uh, it, A lot of people are uh, now, uh, on the other side, frustrated that Elon Musk uh, hinted originally in a response to Hillary Clinton that there's, quote, the tiny possibility there's more to the story than meets the eye. This is a little bit Donald Trump kind of, like, riling up a base that supports him a lot, which is very anti the Pelosi's, and he's kind of been of that mindset for a while, And even though he didn't really directly add fuel to the fire, in practice, he did. And so some people are now calling on Elon Musk to apologize. I actually, even though I think it is true, he kind of added a little bit of fuel to the fire, uh, I don't think it's necessary for him to apologize because it is true. There is the possibility there is more than meets the eye. Uh, That doesn't mean there is or isn't, right? So, uh, but it's worth noting that 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 is something else that's uh, moving around on social media right now. David Papi did plead not guilty to six charges, including attempted murder. Uh, The California judge uh, uh, ultimately um, involved in this case ruled that uh, this footage shall be released, which I actually think it's great that it's released because in my opinion, putting everything together the way that we just put it makes it very clear to me that these homophobic claims are a stretch. I'm not saying it's not slightly possible, but if I had to place money on what's happening here, I would bet a million bucks that Paul Pelosi is, uh, is, is de-escalating and trying to bait police to come, which is exactly what happened, to get this guy out of his house. Uh, that, that, and, and that ultimately as what we've described here is, is that. Now look, when you make a bet doesn't mean you're right, but based on all of this put together, the way we've just done and constructed, I think it's very difficult to claim that a sexual relation here was the intention. I think that's a very difficult claim to make. Uh, I think the only way you can make that claim is by looking at a screenshot of Paul Pelosi holding a drink while holding David DePape's arm. Uh, can, in other words, the only way you could really come to the conclusion that this there's some kind of sexual encounter going on here is by taking a single picture completely out of context when the reality is Paul Pelosi was almost murdered. But that's social media for you. And that's my take and my response to... The Pelosi situation. Okay. Now we have another situation to respond to. And uh, this has gotten a lot of attention. But I'm actually extremely frustrated by where it is not getting the attention that it actually rightfully deserves. And it has to do with Project Veritas uh, and the Pfizer story. Now, in the past, Project Veritas has done both great things and not so great things. I say that up front because I want to be very clear here that even though in what I'm about to say, I, I support what Veritas is doing, I think there are some things that they could do better, uh, even in this case here, and hopefully uh, some of that advice will will translate over to them. Uh, but in addition, uh, I if what, what they've uncovered is true, I really support what they're doing. Uh, and uh, I want to be clear that my goal is to go into this as neutrally as possible. So... Basically, Project Veritas set up uh, the potential grinder date between an unnamed reporter and this individual here. And this individual on camera here is allegedly a director of research at Pfizer. And uh, the reason I say allegedly is actually because Project Veritas gives some limited information proving that this person works at Pfizer. But I think we need a little bit more confirmation. Now, I'm going to go through some of their evidence. And it's a bad look that Pfizer has not actually come out yet to say that this person either does or does not work for Pfizer. Because if the person didn't work at Pfizer, wouldn't Pfizer come out immediately and go, we don't know who that is. This is staged, right? So, so far, I'm heavily leaning in the direction of suggesting Project Veritas is probably right in suggesting this is a Pfizer employee. And, and again, we're going to go through their evidence in just a moment. Uh, and what really shocks me, and I want to say this up front, what really shocks me is that the mainstream media is not covering this. The only people covering this are small media channels, the wall street journal, the New York times, the Washington post, none of them are covering project Veritas's work on this. And I think that's a disgrace. Because at bare minimum, cover it and 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 address where the potential holes are, right? And I've already kind of given the biggest hole. The biggest hole is: do we for sure know that this person did indeed work at Pfizer? We know that they end up labeling that this person works at Pfizer, but we we don't have that fact, right? We don't have that uh, uh, that 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 uh, that absolute proof. And but I do think that mainstream media should be covering this, but they're not, and that makes me very concerned that we need to be even more skeptical of mainstream media. Why is it that, and, and, and I'm not tinfoil hat, okay? I'm like, like, definitely, I don't think I'm tinfoil hat. But why is it not being covered? That makes me concerned, and it makes me skeptical. Uh, at least, again, cover it, and then say like, hey, these are unsubstantiated, but this is what they're saying. But there's zero coverage at all, and we know Pfizer's got uh, lots of money. We also know that uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board just had one of their members, Not even the full Wall Street Journal editorial board, but just one of their members came out and talked about, hey, maybe the bivalent booster shot is not a good idea. Maybe the bivalent booster shot is not safe, and maybe it's way less effective than the CDC and FDA actually suggested it would be. And then they ended up themselves proving it's not that safe and effective, right? Only one member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board got published saying that. So I think there's a really big issue with mainstream media remotely criticizing big pharma. And that's bad because if mainstream media is scared of big pharma, then, then we don't get the coverage we deserve as Americans or, or people in the world, really. Everybody would benefit from that. So I'm not going to go through all of this. But I'm going to play a little bit of this, uh, and then I'm going to add some of my reactions and commentary. So we'll jump around a little bit in this. Let's go ahead and play some of it
1: about yeah. mutating COVID? Well, that is not what we say to the public. No. Don't tell anyone this You have you to you. You yeah. hey, yeah. We're exploring, like, not, you know how the virus keeps mutating? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is, like, why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can post <laughs> uh, we can create, un-developed new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of, like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating viruses. We have to be, like, very controlled to make sure that this virus mutates just so create something like you know, goes everywhere. Something crazy. Suspect, is the way of the virus started. moved around. To be honest, like it's, it makes no sense that this virus popped out of nowhere. Like,
0: all right. So let's let's break this down because there's a lot of information to break down here, and there's a lot to understand uh, about uh, how uh, how well some of the science involved. I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to do my best. So the first thing that you have to understand is the difference between genetic engineering and gain-of-function. This becomes very, very important because uh, Fauci, for example, said uh, in a video uh, in congressional testimony that no, we don't use gain-of-function research, but then there have been links to Fauci uh, actually potentially being aware of -of gain-of-function research happening at labs like the Wuhan lab in in China, which some say there are links, and there may be, I didn't research this part, so I wanna be clear about that, but there may be links to US funding to that Wuhan lab, right? Anyway, this is also where Elon Musk has come out and suggested, oh, Fauci knew, Fauci lied, prosecute Fauci, Elon suggested that. I don't think Elon should really be like going that far, Uh, In terms of making those allegations, let other people make those allegations, allegations, and then maybe reply like, "Oh, like he does with a curious face, or like this deserves investigation." Like that's fine. Like bring attention to it, but you know when you go too political, especially when you're trying to attract advertisers from a business CEO point of view, bad idea for the purposes of business. That's not saying it's a bad idea for the purposes of humanity, right? Again, I'm a big fan of Elon bringing attention to things. Uh, but, but but he's also kind of got to consider that, hey, wait a minute, like we don't want to bankrupt Twitter because guess what? If you bankrupt Twitter, and this is where I know a lot of people like Kevin, if the most powerful person in the world can't say it, why should he self-silence himself? I'm like, I'm I'm not, I'm I'm trying, I want, I want Twitter to be preserved because Google actually and YouTube are removing this content from the internet. That's why I'm not going to play all of it because they're removing this. They're censoring this. And I don't think that's right. Uh, and so I'm not I'm not going to play the whole thing uh, uh, obviously, but I, w- I want to comment on it and, and and bring it to the attention of everyone. Uh, but I believe that if Twitter goes bankrupt, you actually lose more free speech than if it stays alive, right? So I think there's there's like this duality of like bring attention to issues and let them share get shared, but but don't make advertisers run away from you, Elon, because we need Twitter, right? So big fan of free speech, obviously. We need Twitter. Okay, so now. We have to understand a little bit about the difference between gain-of-function and genetic engineering. So genetic engineering is pretty simple. Uh, Genetic engineering can be done through crossbreeding, for example, watermelons, where to some degree you want seedless watermelons, you just basically only breed watermelons without uh, uh, the big black seeds, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller over time. That's how you get sort of seedless watermelons, right? Uh, But that's sort of more like, some people would say that's not even genetic engineering anymore. Another form of genetic engineering would be you actually, this is probably more genetic engineering for the main purposes here is you take DNA and then maybe you uh, slice out a, uh, a a corrupt portion of DNA that maybe gives a person asthma, for example, and instead you insert the proper base pairs that remove that defect strain of DNA, that defective strain, and now maybe somebody's asthma is cured. That has not actually happened yet in humans, but those are the goals of, of genetic engineering. Uh, Obviously, humans and human biology is substantially more complicated because your DNA is replicating thousands of times, probably per second in your body, uh, and uh, this is very complicated to try to reprogram your whole body. It's kind of like once you have it, you're probably stuck for a while, uh, at least into the future. With a virus, it's a lot easier because you're talking about essentially a single-cell organism, and, and you can manipulate the DNA of a virus to maybe do different things. Now, it's one thing if you manipulate a virus and you take out its ability to infect other things, right? Now what you're actually doing is you're reducing the virality of a virus. You're making that virus less capable. Well, that's different from gain of function. So you can do genetic engineering without making a virus worse, right? Now, to some degree, uh, genetic engineering is used to manipulate viruses so that way, okay, maybe if you evolve into this, we already have a vaccine for that. You evolve into that, we already have a vaccine for that. Obviously, there's a profit motive to genetic engineering because if viruses can be engineered uh, in such a way that we kind of know which way they're going to evolve and you can create vaccines for those and the people who want to take those will then end up taking those and buying those, then Pfizer could potentially make more money, right? Ultimately, it all goes back to money. That's obvious. And, and I don't think anybody who's a capitalist is opposed to people making money. We're opposed to people lying to us, okay? That's bad. Or doing really bad things. Like potentially, potentially, Gain of function. So what is gain of function? Gain of function is also a genetic modification, but it's a genetic genetic, um, modification that allows a virus to literally gain a function. So think about like a tool that it didn't previously have. So think about that kind of like a human virus that doesn't infect cats, but it's now genetically modified to where now all of a sudden it can infect cats. Now the virus has gained a function. It can now infect something it previously couldn't. And the belief is that through the Wuhan lab leak theory of how COVID got out, that gain-of-function research was being used, and this, this basically COVID, uh, the original strain of COVID and, and and Delta or whatever, all stemmed from a lab leak because gain-of-function research was maybe being operated on uh, viruses that only affected bats, but now was engineered to infect humans, and then it got out. Oops! Now you have a COVID pandemic and a disaster so this is why gain of function has received a really, really, really bad reputation. And, uh, everybody pretty much politically says it doesn't happen. It probably does happen. And that could be intentional or unintentional because again, if you're genetically engineering, at some point you're going to accidentally create gain of function. It's in my opinion, it's kind of like, like saying like, oh yeah, no, we don't do gain of function. We just do genetic modifying, but then oops, we abs- accidentally happened to provide uh, a function gain to a virus. So I think that's kind of useful to know. I think it's also, also useful to know that in 2010, a federal jury awarded $1.37 million in damages to a former Pfizer scientist who claimed that she was sickened by genetic, uh, a genetically engineered virus at a company lab uh, the closing facts of that case actually were pretty damning, showing that she was basically ignored. Her concerns about health and safety and improper ventilation and a broken vent hood were ignored, and that now she suffers from uh, partial py- paralysis occasionally uh, and a potassium disorder. Uh, and that when she addressed this issue with her bosses and supervisors, she was threatened that if she brought light to these issues, she would just receive bad performance reviews. She ended up getting fired didn't return to work, sued, won $1.37 million in damages over this. So Pfizer has not had the best reputation for, you know, health and safety over profit, which again, not a surprise. I think the biggest surprise is the mainstream media's unwillingness to cover uh, this sort of story. So what we have here is the title of this Jordan Tristan Walker guy, Pfizer director of research and development, strategic operations and MRNA scientific planning. That is Veritas's claim, right? The big concern that I have uh, is, is where? how do we verify that, that the person act, actually worked at uh, Pfizer? And uh, Project Veritas has started releasing some of that evidence. For example, this, breaking. A new Pfizer insider just sent me an image of Jordan Tristian Walker's internal Microsoft Teams profile showing he's still an active employee of the pharmaceutical giant. If you have any more information, contact us. Now, as an outsider, this looks pretty damning, right? We see the at Pfizer. If you see the prior screenshots Project Veritas has put up as well, like a Spookio profiles showing the potential for an at Pfizer. Uh, you know, it, it, it all kind of aligns that this person probably did end up working at Pfizer. Uh, the person's LinkedIn profile has disappeared, but what bothers me a little bit, and I just want to make it clear is I wish that before project Veritas released, uh, their video, I wish they would have fully documented everything they could have gotten their hands on about the person and how they're linked to Pfizer, like full LinkedIn profile, you know, any kind of documentation that this person works for Pfizer and put a little bit more effort into that. Because then I think it would have, if they could without a doubt prove that this person actually worked for Pfizer, which so far I'm inclined to believe, then maybe it could have finally gotten the uh, mainstream media to wake up and cover this. Because I think that's sort of the biggest crime is that the mainstream media isn't covering this. And instead it's it's basically being censored and buried. So I'm concerned about that story. And I'm most concerned about the fact that this individual, which I won't play that part of the video, but when when it sort of gets discovered uh, that he's being filmed, he freaks out, there's a tussle, he grabs uh, uh, O'Keefe's uh, um, iPad when, when O'Keefe ends up uh, confronting him as the, the person on the date goes away, grabs the iPad, throws it, gets locked in, the police got, it's just a complete disaster. We're not going to play all of that. Uh, but... but But my bottom line take out of all of this is uh, that I actually think it's a great thing that there are companies like Project Veritas that that are covering this sort of stuff uh, because now it's going to push for more transparency. First of all, it demands responses from Pfizer. And Pfizer has two choices. They can either—well, actually, they have three choices. They can uh, address it and admit the person worked there and fire them. Uh, and, and then say that, hey, like, you know, clarify, like, this is what we do. Maybe we do engineering, but we don't do gain of function, right? Like, that's really all they'd have to do. And at least it would do some damage control. But right now they're completely silent. They're silent because the mainstream media isn't covering it. And that's the scariest part is that the mainstream media isn't covering it. And their silence is kind of like, so he does and you do, right? Like, that's, that's bad. Uh, And then, of course, the other option is saying, no, this person doesn't work here. We're being set up. That person's never worked here. Those are fake screenshots or whatever. That's the other option too, right? And so that's why I'm I'm trying to take as much of a neutral POV here because you've even got Marco Rubio sending like demand letters now uh, saying, look, Pfizer, you need to respond to this, which they should. They should respond to this. But I understand they might also have that POV of like, oh, well, you know, if we respond to it, it's just going to bring more attention to the issue. Personally, what I'm seeing here does not look good. It, first of all, looks very bad for how in bed the mainstream media and pharma probably is. Almost certainly is. Uh, and it certainly doesn't look good that there hasn't been a response from Pfizer yet. Because it does sort of imply that, yeah, the prob- person probably did work at Pfizer. Or maybe still does. And, uh, and, you know, what the person was saying was kind of alarming. So it'd be nice to have a little bit more insight into that because I think the biggest allegation out of all of it was, and even though it was cut up in in a way where it probably seems a little bit more damning, you can't cut up the part where he says, well, that's not what we say publicly, right? People don't want to hear that. That's scary. That's kind of like Twitter saying, oh, we don't shadow ban people. We just visibility filter people. That's bullshit. That's like lying to you, right? I mean, that's straight up lying to you. It's like, no, we don't do that, but we do that. And that's the biggest concern. Uh, And and, and so I'm glad that more attention is coming to this. And there's certainly more uh, to come on this, but I I absolutely wanted to bring attention uh, to this because I think it's very important. So, okay. So now we've covered a lot. We've covered inflation. We covered David Pepe. We covered Pfizer. It's my birthday. And I'm sure there's more stuff to cover as well. Actually, I do still have some more stuff to cover. Um, yeah. So let's see here. The next thing that I want to cover is uh, has to do with DeSantis. So DeSantis... And some uh, Trump supporters right now, because DeSantis is widely believed to be a candidate who can uh, beat Donald Trump in the presidential election. DeSantis is being, uh, well, is having some of his past called into question. And the, the weakest point so far people have against DeSantis, which I actually don't even think is that weak, is that at one point, he was, well, he was a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. And at one point, uh, in 2013, 14, and 15, voted for budgets that would have slashed spending for Social Security and Medicare. And so now Donald Trump is jumping on this idea that, oh, okay, well, I'm going to use that as a way to say, I'll never cut a single penny from Medicare and Social Security. He's trying to get that older voter, right? Uh, and uh, that's a, that's a little bit of um a claim that'll end up being duked out. It would be easily combated by DeSantis, suggesting now that, yeah, I did in the past, but I realized, oh, that was wrong, and now I don't. That would be the easiest way to solve that. Now, another thing that I think is quite interesting in the world of politics is you actually have Gavin Newsom who posted a chart, uh, and the chart says that Republican policies are resulting in higher rates of murder. The facts speak for themselves. I hope the Republican National Committee, who have graced us with their presence in California today, are discussing it. And he posts this particular chart, which I'm going to add a little bit of context to. Uh, This particular chart is what he posts. And he says Biden voting states have 6.2 murders per 100,000 based on the 2020 election results. And Trump voting states have an 8.2 murder rate out of 100,000 people. Now, I don't know with certainty what the answer to this is, but I'm going to provide some insight. I believe there is a likelihood that the reason there's a divergence here is because, unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the, the median income of a Republican voter on net is lower than that of Democrats. Now, that's not to say one's better than the other. But it is to say that lower incomes, especially once you cross the poverty line, are associated with violent crime. In fact, if you are in poverty, you are twice as likely to be the victim of violent crime compared to if you are not in poverty. That's important. So there's definitely a link between income and crime. And I think everybody can agree with that. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, and I don't know how this ties into uh, Repub vs. Dem, but uh, there is also a very clear link between race and poverty. Someone who is black is twice as likely to be in poverty as someone who is white. It might actually even be two and a half times as likely. Uh, The statistics are pretty damning on that side. So uh, I think that this single chart that Gavin Newsom posts is misleading and unfair to Republicans because it, it there's so much more, so much more that goes into why murder rates are what they are. And I'm sure there are many other reasons that I haven't even remotely touched on here. But uh, this is not a surprise because obviously Gavin Newsom is, is, a, is a politician who eventually probably will run for uh, president. And, and I think that uh, he should not be president. I I do not think that Newsom should be anywhere near the White House. His policies substantially fail in California. The education system has not been improved an ounce uh, under his uh, governorship. Homelessness has not been remotely addressed under his governorship. It seems like his M.O. is send stimulus checks and now we're deficit spending in California. Just to float by his governorship, not actually take drastic action to try to improve things. Because why, if you take drastic action, you risk not being able to run for president because what if you fail? You know, this is why I ran for governor. I'm like, I can't be president. So I don't care to be president. So I'm actually gonna worry about trying to fix California and do something. But that's not Governor Newsom's last stop in politics. So uh, that's why he's not doing anything. (laughs) In my opinion. Uh, He doesn't wanna rock the boat frustrating. All right. Next stop. So that's politics for you. Politics is a mess, man. Absolute mess. Abrams tanks being sent at a cost of $400 million. 31 M1 Abrams tanks, $400 million. The cost of those going to Germany from the United States. That continues to push the idea that the military industrial complex is going to be very happy at the additional amount of money uh, that is going to them, although they've got some pretty high backlogs. We were researching this, uh, Lockheed Martin uh, backlogs uh, and, and some of the other uh, industrial, you know, Raytheon companies, huge backlogs for, for military orders. I mean, going back, uh, potentially, you're, you're waiting years on new orders to actually get product. And uh, the, the war sort of restocks the backlogs, if you will. Uh, let's see here. We've got KB Homes showing 68% cancellation rate in Q4 for 2022. That is well up from the 13% cancellation rate in Q4 2021. Aluminum and copper usage expected to shrink substantially in wind and solar farms. This is not actually suggesting that less copper and uh, aluminum will be used as a commodity for energy projects, it's just to say that you can get a higher megawatt output now with fewer commodities, uh, which is great. It's actually great for the improvement of solar and actually makes me very excited about the future of um, companies like Enphase. So very excited about that. All right, let's do a, let's answer a few questions here. And uh, then we're probably uh, at the end of our morning stream here. So, uh, happy birthday. Yes, thank you. Uh, Very excited. Uh, (laughs) I remember last year you were late for pizza on your birthday because of the stream. Yeah, I'm going to make it my goal not to be late anymore. (laughs) Uh, Aren't they supposed to protect their source because this will scare others from speaking? I'm not so worried about the source. Yes, that is a journalistic privilege at Pfizer. I'm more worried about, like... It'd be nice if they had all the LinkedIn stuff first, right? And then they could publish that with the video. Uh, and I think that's just an easy adjustment project could make. So small, small little uh, suggestion for them. I'm not at all trying to suggest that I'm in the place where I'm, you know, able to make suggestions to them. But that's, that's something that I think would make this a little bit easier. Thank you, ACBNB. For the 4.99 donation, uh, thank you so much, Marco. For the 9.99, hey Kevin, happy birthday, Kevin! Been following you since 2020. Made money with your ideas, logic, and plan makes sense. Just bought the Elite Hustlers course at 12 a.m. last night before bed. We'll go through after the stream. Let's go! Thank you so much for joining. Super appreciate that. Thanks for everyone. Would be funny for you to paintball a live stream. <laughs> you know, in the future, I would do stuff like that, live stream that stuff, because the internet's just lame when I, when I try to do stuff on the go. Uh, it gets very frustrating. Yeah, so I cover this news, uh, latest news, every single day. Yes, every single day. I expect a live stream probably starting at about 4.30 a.m. California time, usually ending by about 6.30. So it's really about a couple hours of covering all of the uh, madness that happens in the day. And uh, sometimes I, I post other videos that are unrelated to this live stream throughout the day. Sometimes it's clips from this. So, uh, But the morning stream will also be available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify. Uh, usually within about 30 to 45 minutes of me ending the stream here. So anyway, hey folks, thank you so much for being here. This was fun. I'm gonna get another cup of coffee and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks again. Goodbye.